Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this week should look quite familiar as it is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. Our primary sermon text will be Matthew 13, 17 through 19, that discourse and dialogue by uh, Jesus as he speaks to Peter in response to Peter's confession. Some things that are of note as we begin to read these words is that, like we've already mentioned, it starts by looking at what Jesus isn't. He's not just another prophet. He is the prophet. But even saying that he's the prophet like Moses ultimately stops short of truly getting the whole picture. But what does get the whole picture is what Simon Peter, oddly called Simon Peter, whence most other places in the Gospel of Matthew he is simply called Peter, how Simon the Peter, Simon called Peter, ultimately responds and tells us that he is the Christ the Son of the living God. And so this then is what the scripture reads. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, good morning again. And you can turn once more to Matthew chapter 16. We will be in uh, verses 17 through 19 today. Over the course of the next three weeks, after this ending our little excursus at the midway point in Matthew's gospel, we will be in John 1, 1 to 18. And we will be resuming Matthew for the second half, um, looking at January, probably looking at January 22nd. You guys can look forward to getting back into Matthew at some point in January. Last week, we looked at the words of Jesus that I will build my church. Jesus makes that promise. And we, one of the implications we looked at is that if he will build his church, then we have to pay attention to his means and how he desires to do it. Which also means we need to know a lot about what he says about the church. In verses 17 through 19 of Matthew 16, 
one of the first places in which he does begin to say it. In fact, it is the first time that the words church or the concept of church is introduced in Scripture. One of the few times that it's on the very lips of Jesus. So it is definitely significant to understanding what he desires for the church. And this then is what we read. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Father, help us as we look at these words. As it is indeed said here, it is not the work of flesh and blood to reveal truth to us. But it is your work, O oh Father. So please do reveal to us the truth of your word. And cause us to rejoice evermore in the reality of who you are. Lord, cause us to rejoice that your son is the Christ and that he will build his church. And help us to meditate upon and truly understand what it means and how he intends to do so. Lord, I know there is a lot more than just this passage that tells us how Christ works. But do direct us in this passage to understand what it teaches us about you and about your church. And so, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're an architect and you're working on a building... You're going to be working with a lot of blueprints, trying to draw out or maybe use a computer program to map out the way in which the different pieces, different bricks will fit together. And you'd create then this blueprint that then the builders would follow to make sure your vision comes to fore, comes in place. The passage before us today is the beginning of Jesus' blueprint for the church. And it comes as he describes how Peter is marked as blessed because he made the good confession. That good confession is very important. We read it one more time. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That Christ, the Son of the living God, now talks and speaks. And first, we have in verse 17, the comment Jesus makes about the revelation of the Father. Verse 17 tells us this, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. 
but my Father which is in heaven. Now we did look at these for this verse and said everything I planned to say today about a month ago. But as it was a month ago, let's go ahead and review it here. Jesus comes in and declares a blessing upon Peter. He calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, the son, Bar is Aramaic for son, the son of Jonah, or the son of John. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The reason why the confession marks Peter as blessed is because it's not flesh and blood. It's no human effort that has revealed this, has revealed this to him. It's not the Pharisees in 16 verses 1 to 4, where they are demanding a sign, where they demand that sign by which there then be no doubt that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. We read there, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, when it is evening, you say it will be like, will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it'll be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left, and he left them and departed. Instead of manipulating to get definitive revelation, he's accepting the revelation from the Father and accepting Jesus' own uh, subtle description and identification. A subtle use that continues in verse 20 of Matthew 16. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus, the Christ. He receives the revelation, does not demand further signs, doesn't look for flesh and blood to make it clear, accepts the revelation of the Father. Now it is still the case and important to remember that like Peter, we can share in this blessing by accepting the revelation and joining in Peter's confession. To come before Jesus and say, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the one chosen to save your people from their sins. You are the son of the living God, perfectly able to accomplish what you have set out to do. And then to further say, Lord, I need you. I am a sinner. I can't make myself righteous. When I try to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. I need you to take my penalty. 
and Christ already has. He's not the type of Messiah who just comes in and conquers. He's the type of Messiah that conquers death by dying. That conquers our sin by taking it upon himself and suffering in our place. That's the good news. That Jesus is the king who died. That Jesus is the king who died so that all who believe in him might live. So let's believe in him. If you haven't accepted him, if you haven't turned to him, let today be that day. Talk to me as I'm standing outside the study door. Ask me for more information. I'll be sure that you get it. We can share in the blessing by sharing, by sharing in that confession. Jesus' kind of blessing of Peter continues in verse 18. As he talks about the building of the church. Verse 18 reads this. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the passage, and the verse in this passage, that is the most controversial. But regardless of the controversy surrounding it, we have to acknowledge that the whole of the passage shows that Christ is supreme. Even this verse talks about his building, his church, and the foundation that he chose. It is in this passage that we get a confession where a person in the narrative for the first time acknowledges him to be the Christ, and not only so, but the son of the living God. And it is because of his supremacy that there can be such a statement that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is because of him alone that we can have that promise and beauty that the church will not be defeated by sin, death, the devil, and hell. Let's remember that as we get into some of the weeds of this verse. That Christ's supremacy is not really in question regardless of where some things go. Jesus begins this verse, and I say also unto thee, he adds solemnity to what he is saying to Peter. And then he says that thou art Peter. Which is a little strange at first. Don't really think that many people need to be reminded of what their name is. That's kind of the thing, is that Peter is not actually a name at all. Look back at Matthew 4.18. When Peter is called to be a disciple, 
Jesus's ministry is beginning, at least his public ministry is beginning. He's calling the first disciples. Then we read in Matthew 4, 18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Name is Simon, but he's also called Peter. He has a, a nickname, perhaps even a, a title that is bestowed upon him. And this also shows up again in the only other use of Simon in reference to Peter up to this point in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And now in Matthew 16, it's Simon Peter who answers in verse 16, It's blessed are you, Simon, son of John. And then it's thou art Peter. It almost seems in some sense that Jesus is mimicking Peter. That as Peter made the great confession that he is the son of the living God and gave him a functional title, now Jesus is making a declaration that Simon is the son of John and giving him a functional title. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. As with many things within this passage, Jesus doesn't directly say, oh yeah, the rock is blank. Leaves it for us to tease out and have to think through and meditate. But I think we can definitively say that this has nothing to do with how it has been interpreted within the Roman Catholic Church. This is a, a large part of how the Roman Catholic Church has seen about papal succession. Peter, they interpret as being the rock. Peter then has a succession of, of popes after him that has the supremacy in that type of situation over the church. But within the whole context, it's not Peter, but Christ that's been supreme. Christ is building his own church such that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And while we've seen Peter stand as a representative of the disciples, even called the first in a very leadership-like role in Matthew 10, his first among equals leadership. His leadership doesn't become hierarchical or supreme. It doesn't become unilateral. It becomes a first among equals of the apostles. Such that we can have some pretty dramatic examples of how Peter is then used or sent by the entire apostolic band. 
Famously, in Galatians 2, Paul writes this, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Any leadership Peter has doesn't stop Paul from being able to say, you're in the wrong. There's not an infallibility of Peter. He is able to make errors, and the apostles rightly can rebuke him for that. And in Acts 8.14, the apostles as a group can send Peter. He submits to them as a whole. So this idea of the rock does not create anything like the idea of papal succession, because Peter doesn't have that type of authority throughout the entire New Testament. But what is the rock? There are three interpretations by evangelicals. The confessed, the confession, or the confessor. The confessed, that would be Jesus. This one sounds like the, the most comfortable one. It is the church's one foundation, after all. But as we did look at last week, when Paul mentioned the fact that he built the church, there is a semblance where images can be used variably. So the fact that Jesus is the rock in some passages doesn't mean he has to be the rock every time. So it's certainly biblically possible, but not guaranteed. Confession also makes a good bit of sense. We've been building up to this confession since 1354, which we started looking at in September in our study. We've been trying to figure out how Jesus had the authority based off of who his father was. And now Peter has made the climactic moment, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And so certainly, the church is indeed built on the one foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then there's the possibility that the rock is the confessor. That it is Peter, not in the Catholic sense, but Peter as the first among equals, Peter as representative head of the apostles, disciples as a whole. And this one strikes us as being the most uncomfortable, but it is biblically consistent. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is describing the 
making peace and the bringing near of the Gentiles. Describing how we were brought into the household of God. And in describing the church in that manner, he says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And they're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And just to throw this out there, in 1 Corinthians 3, Jesus is supreme by being the foundation. Regardless of anything else, in Matthew 16, Jesus is supreme as being the builder. In Ephesians 2, Jesus is supreme by being the cornerstone. But the foundation is the apostles and prophets. The New Jerusalem in Revelation 21:14 is also described as having called foundation stones upon whom are written the twelve names of the apostles of the land. But the, the point of all we've said is that, realistically speaking, it is biblically possible that the rock is the confessed, that it is the confession, or that it is the confessor. And we may end up disagreeing. I imagine that there's already disagreement as to which one there is. Some of you already have your thoughts. Some of you are curious about where we're all going. And I'm fairly well convinced, not just leaning in the direction, but fairly well convinced that Jesus means to say that Peter, the confessor, is indeed the rock. I, I think the implication of reminding us that Peter is a nickname Using the term Simon for the first time since Matthew 10, and only the third time in Matthew's Gospel, the similarities between Peter's confession and Jesus' declaration, you are the son of this person and here's a title for you, and even the wordplay. Peter's name is Petros. The word for rock is Petra. The only difference is one's masculine and one's feminine. The word Petros wasn't really used very often, but the word Petra wouldn't have worked as a name for Peter since Peter was a man. The highlighting of Peter as that representative role is he's the one who asks for an explanation of the parable in Matthew 15, 15. He's the one who walked on the water in Matthew 14, 28-31. And even the logical flow, blessed are you, and I say unto you, and even the keys of the kingdom being given singularly to you, all seem to connect to this idea of Peter also being presented as the rock in his representative role as the head of the apostolic man. D.A. Carson says, well, if it were not for Protestant reactions, 
against extremes of Roman Catholic interpretation. It is doubtful whether many would have taken Rock to be anything or anyone other than Peter. Peter is the first to make this formal confession, and his prominence continues in the earliest years of the church. He is, in short, first among equals, and on the foundation of such men, Jesus built his church. That is precisely why Jesus, toward the close of his earthly ministry, spent so much time with them. The honor was not earned, but stemmed from divine revelation and Jesus' building work. This, of course, doesn't mean that Peter is infallible. It does mean that the church is built on apostolic authority, which also means that when we're looking for what Jesus said about the church, that we can build the church or work with him as he builds the church according to his own means, we don't just have to look at the proverbial red letters. His instructions for how to build the church and how he intends to build the church are in everything that we have in the New Testament written by the apostles. The New Testament shows us Christ's appointed means. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not us, not Peter, not the apostles, not prominent leaders, not church planters, but Jesus will, not might, not if I feel like it, but he will build his church. The assembly of those who believe in him, he will build such that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Precisely because Christ built his church and we are his church that are being built by him, we can have this beautiful saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Sin, death, the devil, and hell has no hold on us. So we can rejoice and we can live without constant fear. Christ has already conquered. We share in his conquering work. Jesus continues talking about how the church will be built and also continuing to bless Peter by talking about the keys of the kingdom in verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I will give unto thee, if you're familiar with archaic English, you'll recognize the thee as singular. 
if you're not, and you look at Bible Hub or Blue Letter Bible, you probably could also see that the Greek is singular. We are still talking about Peter specifically, though I argue that it's Peter in his representative role over the apostle of the whole. And he's said here that he will be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And keys are used for opening and shutting things, even shutting to the point of locking so that no one else can get in. And our first thought might be to gates, so it's also possible that you'd be referring to storehouses. If it is the idea of storehouses, we'd be looking at the apostles, like what we were just saying, having control of the what of the gospel. To explain the doctrine of Jesus, of his good news, and even the doctrine of the church. And it's possible, but based off of how the language that finishes verse 19 is used elsewhere, we do know that it definitely refers to the gates of the kingdom of heaven. The use of the keys is then described as this. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this also, in the way that it reads in the English, gives an almost indication of endorsement of every decision Peter were to make. That would certainly be uncomfortable, theologically suspect, but the Greek grammar does hint against it. They're not simple futures, shall be bound, shall be loosed, but rather they look more at the things that are footnoted in the New King James, ESV, and NIV, it actually uses the translation in the NASB and CSB. That which is bound or loosed on earth shall have been bound or loosed in heaven. When we looked at this on November 13th, and we briefly touched on this, the idea that we presented is that the only way this promise could be true is if there was consistent divine guidance. Peter can bind things on earth such that they match what's been bound in heaven and loose things on earth such that it matches what is bound, what is loosed in heaven, because Christ is present. Indeed, in Matthew 18, where these language is used again, this time in reference to all of us, the work of the church in binding and loosing, the fact of Jesus' guiding presence is very much clear and on display. Matthew 18, 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them.
when two or three are gathered in regard to these questions about binding or loosing, Jesus is there in the midst of them, ready to guide. R.T. France summarizes well, the saying becomes a promise not of divine endorsement, but of divine guidance to enable Peter to decide in accordance with God's already determined purpose. Because at the end of the day, this is the means that Christ is using. Christ is still the one building his church, such that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ is the one guiding Peter and the apostles and guiding the churches in the world today to make proper decisions about binding and loosing such that though imperfectly, they match the decrees that have already been made in heaven regarding who is and is not truly a Christian. But we have a great confidence as we go about our lives, as we work in regard to the church, and it's not about us. It's about Christ's work building his own church for his own glory. He gave us a blueprint of how he will work. Because he's not an architect that's distant, but that is in the midst of those who are gathered in his name. Father, we do thank you that your son is with us, that he is building his church even building this church. Not just talking about it in, in general, in vague terms, but thinking specifically about his work here in this, your body. I ask that you would continue to do a work in us and that we would reflect well upon what you do, what you have for us. And help us to continue to be reminded of what it's all about, and how just as it's true in the gospel that it's not about us, but about you and your son's work, they were reminded of the same when it comes to the church. And I thank you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>